When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you are listening to episode 144 of the Sustainable Minimalists podcast. On today's show, I am thrilled to bring you part two of our four-part series running this fall, all about self-sufficiency, which I super creatively, not so creatively, but super creatively nicknamed our self-sufficiency spotlight. The self-sufficiency spotlight is designed to highlight some very simple and very actionable steps that you and I can take on to become a little bit more self-sufficient. So we're doing more things for ourselves. We're relying less on corporations, less on products, less on supermarkets to make and sell things to us. We don't need it because we're doing it ourselves. The first episode in this series was all about microgreens. Maybe you caught it. It was super popular. So many of you wrote to me after that episode aired saying, you got yourself some microgreens kits. You've been happily growing them by yourself or with your children. And I'm so happy that the microgreens episode really spoke to so many of you. Today, we're talking about a completely different aspect to self-sufficiency, and that is foraging. Today, I am bringing you an interview with Lisa Bedford. Lisa is a blogger and an emergency preparedness expert. She is on the show to tell us everything we need to know about what foraging is, how we can do it in our own backyards or our own communities, and how to do it safely so we don't accidentally potentially pick or harvest something that is not quite so edible. Now, today's interview is absolutely 100% jam-packed, so... Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into it. Enjoy the interview. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about a self-sufficiency skill that I know absolutely nothing about, and that, of course, is foraging. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm really thrilled to talk to somebody more knowledgeable than me. (laughs) Usually I like to educate myself a little bit, but I feel as though this is a topic where I just need somebody with some experience under their belt to just come in and (laughs) teach me and teach the listeners. So before we even get into foraging today, I really want to talk to you about your amazing website. What do you blog about and how did you find yourself passionate, so passionate, in fact, that you started a website all about disaster preparedness? 
Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. Well, my blog came about, I think like a lot of things do, out of just a personal journey. And in 2000, the end of 2008 and 2009, my family encountered something we really had not encountered before. And that was some really difficult times because of a major downturn in the economy. And my husband's business was almost going under. And I'm a fighter. I don't ever just sit back and wait for you know, things to collapse around me. And I've never been one to just sit and wait to be rescued. And maybe that resonates with you, Stephanie, and some of your listeners. So I started to do some research. What could I do as just the typical, at the time I was a stay-at-home mom, but I had a side business and I was homeschooling our kids, but I had no special skills. I had no special background as far as being ready, you know, and the whole idea of preparedness or prepping or survival had literally never occurred to me before. So I started researching and that led me into the realm of preppers, which I didn't realize, but it had just become a hot topic across the country. So I started writing about what I personally was doing. And with my background in education and curriculum development and so on, uh, pretty soon I began teaching about it and it spread from there because it really hits the heart of a mom. Because what we want for our families, we want our families to be safe. We want to know that when something happens, we've done everything we can to, you know, to prepare for that moment and to protect the ones we love. And that really is what Survival Mom is all about. Hmm. So much of what you said just hit my heart <laughs> because you're calling it disaster preparation. But for me, on my own journey with my website and this podcast, it's leaning me towards what I would consider homesteading. And that's never, ever (laughs) something I ever thought I would find myself interested in. But you're right. As moms, we have a responsibility to our children and to keep them safe. And for you, it sounds like your journey started at the downturn of the economy, For me, it's now looking at the future of our planet and what climate change is going to mean for safety and security. So I'm wondering whether the interest in disaster preparation that you've seen on your website has ebbed and flowed with the economy or whether as (laughs) the years go by and whether as climate comes to the forefront of many of our minds and the and to the forefront of media, you're seeing even more of an increase in interest. Well, this is what I love about what I do. And it sounds like, Stephanie, what you're doing and kind of where the, the message that you also, you're sharing with your own listeners and followers, and that is it's a really big tent. And so under the whole tent of, let's say, prepping and survival, that's a big tent that covers concerns about the climate, climate change, the virus, the pandemic has been a huge topic. And I've done some training in that area as well. A job loss, you know, hours that are cut down. In fact, right now with our economy, there are a lot of uh, sectors of the economy that are suffering. So it's a big tent. And the beauty of it is that when you, Stephanie, when you begin to take into consideration what concerns you the most, at the same time, you're preparing for a winter storm. You're preparing for, you know, some kind of natural disaster or a weather-related disaster. It all goes hands at hand in hand, which makes it even more practical and more common sense for someone who 
you know, thinks that preppers are crazy or I could never be a survivalist. I can't stand that, you know, that idea. You know, I live in New York City or I live in downtown LA. It doesn't matter where you live. It really is the mindset and prepping. It's a big tent. Hmm. You said something there that I really want to hone in on, which is the perception that preppers are crazy. (laughs) What do you say to those people? It really has been a very short window of time in which a large amount, probably the vast, vast majority of society pretty much lives on the edge, paycheck to paycheck. They scramble when the power goes out and they find the one flashlight in their house or apartment that might have working batteries. And we are just so used to the convenience and the comforts that our grandparents and our great-grandparents and then generations before them were never even considered because their lifestyles were just much more based on self-reliance. And when you mentioned homesteading earlier, really at the heart of homesteading is a desire for self-reliance. And when you think about the recent lockdowns and quarantines, some of these are still going on around different spots around the country. Well, how many people were really ready for that? And they were ready to be self-reliant in their homes for 15 days, for four weeks, for two or three months or however long. I know people and I hear from them, they still pretty much are housebound. Well, Being self-reliant at a point like that, it really just makes sense. And the beauty of it, again, is that nothing goes to waste. So as you and I are talking, talking, there are reports of big winter storms hitting Colorado, and winter is coming, right? So if you have extra food set aside, if you have your batteries, you know, for your emergency lights or emergency heat or whatever, you're ready for multiple different kinds of scenarios. That is just common sense. In no way is that paranoid. Hmm. Well, your site covers so many topics as they relate to self-sufficiency and preparedness. And we're just going to touch on one of the dozens of things that you talk about on your very comprehensive site. And I would actually love to talk to you offline about all the other areas of wisdom you have. Maybe you can come on again, but we're going to just talk about foraging today. Before we even get into the practical how-tos of foraging, I'd love to know your thoughts on why do you think foraging is an important self-sufficient or you might say survival skill? Yeah, foraging is overlooked, but it's also one of the most enjoyable things that you can learn. And basically foraging, just a simple definition, is just being able to identify and then utilize edible and medicinal plants wherever they happen to grow, from your front backyard to the wilderness if you're on a camping trip. There's a lot of hidden food around you, a lot more than most people realize. And this knowledge, it really enhances your your set of survival skills because it's a smart way to add to your food stores. So if you have been stocking up on, you know, two or three weeks or longer of just emergency food you set aside, uh, you can add nutrients and micronutrients that you might not otherwise have. And you also can have access to safe and free medical remedies at the same time. Um, I would say that for people who have been building an emergency food storage pantry, foraging doesn't take the place of that, but it supplements what you might have on hand. 
And so uh, I talk about looking for plants that provide like a big jolt of vitamin C, for example, the pine tree. And it really enhances and supplements what you do. And honestly, it's just a fun way to get out in nature and purposeful. So the next time you go for a walk or you're in your backyard, just kind of looking around, you may very well and probably will find foods that have uh, medicinal purposes or ed- uh, they're, they're edible. And teaching your kids this, by the way, is really just a brilliant way of passing it on to another generation. Yeah, it seems like there are two sides to the foraging coin, right? On the one side, on the one hand, foraging can be this just super slow, super mindful activity in nature where you really stop and look and (laughs) become at one with the plants growing in your backyard or in your nearby forest or wherever it may be. But on the other hand, it can be dangerous, right? I feel like for me personally, and probably for a lot of people listening, they are reluctant to even think about foraging, let alone actually do it because they're worried they're going to poison themselves or their families. So I'm wondering, what do you say to people like me who just feel as though it's an untouched (laughs) area of self-sufficiency and they're not going to do it? They're going to go to foraging last. I think from from my conversations with people over the years, it is more common for people to assume that any and every plant, they can just go out and eat and graze like they're an animal. And years ago, I taught uh, survival classes for kids at a Cabela store. And in one of the classes, one of the dads, we were talking about this subject, you know, identifying, you know, what's safe to eat and not just grab something and think, you know, you can start chewing on it. Um, one dad raised his hand and he said, hey, I'm an army ranger. And I can tell you, I've had to pull and go in and pull out more guys from the field because they ate something they shouldn't have than I ever did for actual injuries. And that comes from just a lack of knowledge, but overconfidence, you know, just kind of assuming, hey, it's growing and all these wonderful things around me. I'm back to nature. I'm going to just chew the leaves off of this plant or these seeds or whatever. So that is uh, that is one thing to be aware of. And you mentioned that it can be dangerous. And then I think also just a lack of awareness. I think, Stephanie, we have grown so far away from nature that we sometimes forget that it's, it can be just as simple as going out into our yard and being able to identify or there, you know, there are some dandelions or have an oak tree or there's this pine tree and knowing the different parts of it that can be utilized. But so many of us, and I think especially our children, you know, grandchildren, they uh, they spend most of their time indoors. And it really just never occurs to us. There's a total lack of awareness that, hey, nature has a lot to give and let's get out there and let's learn about it. So we have, you know, we just have the the capability and the knowledge that's so important. And also, you know, just from kind of a health point of view, I like the idea of just spending as much time as I can outside in the sunshine for natural vitamin D. It's a great hobby if I just want to go and just kind of mill around and look to see what I can in the green belts near my house or my backyard or front yard, Uh, but even better to include the entire family. So it's a great way to get kids outdoors, away from the electronics, 
and learn something that's productive and practical that actually they can use the rest of their lives. Yeah, that's a really great point. I've been home with my six-year-old and my three-year-old for almost now six months, thanks to COVID. And we're always looking for new ways to get outside, to enjoy summer here in the Northeast. And maybe not so much for me of teaching them how to forage or about foraging, but instead to learn together and really just walk in that less than pristine area, that wooded area of our yard and get a little bit more observant because you said something earlier about how many of us are so disconnected from nature. And that is absolutely true. I can't really tell you what's growing in that area over there. (laughs) That's not so cultivated. I have one too. I love the idea of really including the kids in the, the learning experience. Now, I would love to ask you, what on earth do you forage for? Well, this is an interesting story because I live in a part of Texas. Now I live in a part of Texas called the Piney Woods. There's a lot to forage. I mean, I can easily go out and forage things from my oak trees and uh, the pine trees. We have different varieties of oaks and pines on our property. There are elderberries growing in uh, the green belts, and we have something called beauty berries. They're vines that crawl all over things and have beautiful fuchsia-colored uh, berries. They don't taste so good on their own. They're just kind of bland, but you can use them in jams and different have different purposes. But I also came from Arizona, Phoenix, um, where if you live in the desert, there are things that you can forage, but it's not nearly the same environment as well, naturally, you know, where there's just the more plants there are, the, you know, the better the odds are that there are going to be things out there that you can use. So it was actually fun to go out on the green belts and find, you know, like, oh, there's a peach tree. Because what you find as you start looking around, especially in areas like Greenbelt, where, you know, people just kind of come and go, is what I call plant volunteers. And that is just plants that have grown up from a random seed. You know, someone threw an apple core, you know, off on the side of, you know, a a walkway or something. And now you have an apple tree or peach trees. I found more than one peach tree in our area and lots of berry bushes. So I think the key is to be watchful. I think you used that word, Stephanie. Be really watchful when you're out and about. And that is a, a skill that we can teach our kids, for example. And before going out saying, okay, kids, we're going to be looking today for elderberries. This is what a photo of an elderberry. This is what the leaves and the stem look like. Let's see if we can find those on our walk today. And that is a much better strategy, by the way. I think we're going to talk about this a little later, but much better strategy than just kind of going out randomly. And all you see are just a bunch of green leaves and eventually they all look alike. (laughs) So you want to go out uh, with a purpose. And that's, those are just a few of the things that I've noticed in our area. So walk me through the first time you foraged. What was going through your mind? What were you looking for? How did you have the confidence to know that you were going to pick the right things and leave the wrong things behind? Walk me through that. Probably the very first time I ever did this purposefully was with the pine trees. They are where I live. They're everywhere in Arizona. They're in northern Arizona. And they're just ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And you have on the pine tree, can uh, the needles are useful. The inner bark is useful. The pollen, uh, seeds, 
even the tiny little sprouts, if you see little uh, pine tree seedlings that grow on the forest floor, even those are edible. And so the very first time that I ever really became aware of this, it was the pine tree. I have so many pine trees in my yard, and they are more of a nuisance than anything else. They fall during storms. They litter my yard with pine needles. So I would love to hear all about what we can forage from a pine tree after a quick message from this week's sponsor, Blissoma. Blasoma does things differently than most of the cosmetics industry, and that's because their estheticians create holistic and botanical skincare made from vitamins, omega fatty acids, herbs, and essential oils, not those hard-to-pronounce ingredients, petrochemicals, or synthetics. Blasoma is the real deal when it comes to ethical business practices, too. Zero ingredients, lack safety data, are tested on animals, or are harmful to skin or body. Their products come in glass bottles, too, and their production studio is 80% solar-powered. I have been using the Sustain line for two months now, and I am a huge fan of their five-star rated mild rice facial cleanser. There are no microbeads to be found in this cleanser, my friends. Instead, it is rice that gently exfoliates and cleanses. Head on over to blissoma.com, that's B-L-I-S-S-O-M-A.com, and enter code MINIMAL at checkout for 20% off Sustain Ecosystem products. All right, and we're back. Let's pick up the conversation right where we left off. What on earth can we forage from a pine tree? I think the easiest thing to do is to gather some of the green needles. These are loaded with vitamin C as much as citrus fruit. And since the human body can't produce or store vitamin C, this would be a really easy way to supplement and make sure that you and everybody in the family, let's say in just a really difficult time with food shortages, for example, that you would always get a fresh dose every day. And with those pine needles, if you look carefully at them, they almost look like there's a protective coating on them. So in order to use them, you have to break down the cell walls. And a couple of ways to do that, and actually I would do both, is get your green pine needles together on a cutting board and then just start chopping them up with a sharp knife just really finely. And then use something like a mortar or pestle or something similar just to crush those. And that is actually going to rupture the cell wall and release the nutrients. You're going to drop those in hot water, but not boiling. You don't want that water to be boiling in this process because the boiling water, when it gets to that temperature, it's going to release the resins and the sap in those needles. And now you're going to feel like you're drinking, you know, pine salt or, you know, like a pine scented air freshener. You don't want that at all. So just um, a good way to do it is to get some water boiling, let it uh, take it off of the heat and let it cool you know, for three, four, five minutes, and then drop the uh, crushed pine needles in there to steep. And that's going to give you a nice dose of vitamin C. Um, I guess the second easiest way to utilize the pine tree would be those seedlings. And you can look for those, you know, in in the spring and summer, but they're little tiny. You'll just see a twig sprouting up underneath, you know, an area where pines grow, and you'll see really tender 
uh, kind of a bright green little pine needles. And you can actually pinch those off and use them like you would rosemary in your uh, cooking or baking. Um, another way, and this is going to require maybe a little hatchet or a nice sharp knife, but the inner layer of bark, it's actually a living layer of bark. It's below the hard outer bark of the tree. If you peel away that outer bark and then you reach the inner bark, that actually can just kind of be peeled off in slices using, you know, a sharp blade and you can uh, roast those. And up in the northern part of the country, and maybe where you live, Stephanie, there is a variety of a northern pine tree. And I have never lived that far north. But a friend of mine has done this, and he says these slices of inner bark, when you fry them or roast them, they taste a little bit like bacon. And that would be an interesting, that would be an interesting experience. Uh, there's another part of the tree that uh, it can be used, but it has a really interesting side effect, I'll tell you in a moment. But that is the pollen. And where I live, there, is a, there are a couple times of the year where we go outside and our tree, our vehicles are covered with this yellow pine tree pollen. But the pollen actually can be used uh, as flour. So with a pollen, you would maybe just kind of crush it, make it a little bit, you know, a little finer. You would use it for like a flatbread. It doesn't have any gluten in it. The downside is kind of funny because this uh, pollen, it actually has the same chemical makeup as testosterone. And so Native American warriors in some parts of the country years ago, they would consume large amounts of this pollen. I don't know if they drank it or ate it, but before battle and there, you know, the testosterone levels would uh, would go up, and they would have something like some kind of a road rage, roid, roid rage going on, you know, before they marched into battle. So, I don't know that I would use pollen for that reason, but uh, just F FYI, you know, it is part of that the whole miracle, you know, the whole miracle really of the pine tree. And then finally, the pine trees have seeds hidden inside the pine cones, but when you see pine cones and all the layers are wide open it's too late to get to the seeds. The seeds have been released. So you want to look for green pine cones or pine cones that are kind of a, a grayish brown. And you can tell they're just really tightly closed. If you take pliers and begin to ply, or you know, choose the pliers to pry open the different layers of the pine cone, you're going to see something inside that looks like a scale or something like a little helicopter blade. And at that end, one end of this helicopter blade looking scale is the seed. And you can toast those or eat those raw. And you can even toast them and grind those into flour. So the pine tree actually is pretty amazing. And if you have those around, that would be a very easy place to start. And honestly, I would start with uh, by making pine tree tea. It's just something for, uh, for starting out. You have just introduced me to an entire new world, because I was alluding to earlier, I <laughs> look at my pine trees with disdain, but who knew all the different ways that the pine tree can give back to my family? Thank you so much. Many people know that you can use dandelions for the salves. That might be a beginner first step, but where do you suggest the average listener who has never foraged for anything wild ever in their lives, where do you suggest they start? You know, you mentioned dandelions, and I'm glad that you did because I don't know a part of the country, Stephanie, where you don't find dandelions at one time of the year or another. 
uh, we have found them in super high elevations in Colorado and, you know, in our desert backyard and front yard. We lived in Phoenix and everywhere in between. But here is something that is absolutely fascinating to me when it comes to um, foraging. And that is that every part of a plant is not necessarily edible or medicinal. So you can have a plant where, for example, the leaves are safe to eat, but the root is not. The root could be poisonous. Or a part of the plant has to be cooked a certain way. Otherwise, it could make you sick if it's not outright toxic. So as your listeners and as you start digging into this, that to me is one of the most amazing things that I learned is that I can't just assume that, you know, just because an elderberry is, you know, good to go and I can use the elderberries in syrup and wine and all kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily mean the leaves are edible, the stem or the roots. Uh, Every part of a plant has to be considered separately. So if I was going to just begin or, you know, give advice to someone who has never done this before, first of all, I would say get excited, get excited and fully expect that you are going to find things very close by, maybe right outside your door that is useful, either as something that's edible or something's medicinal. And then start small. As I mentioned earlier, don't just wander out into the great wide wilderness and find a plant, and then try to identify it. That's actually the hard way to go about doing this. It is much better to find something that's close by and go outdoors looking for that with something in mind. So dandelions or the pine tree, those are two obvious ones. Um, Different kinds of berries, but uh, it's a much better, much easier, much easier process if you start out with a purpose. Rather than, because as I said earlier, eventually all green leaves, they kind of start looking alike. Uh, There are a few safety factors to keep in mind. And as I mentioned earlier, that army ranger who was having to rescue guys who actually were taking survival classes, that's or survival courses and training. That's why they were out in the wilderness to begin with. And then they've started eating things they shouldn't. Um, But surprisingly, foraging officially is not allowed just anywhere. So it's, uh, as far as I know, it's not allowed in kind of in city parks, unless you want to talk to, you know, your city council or, you know, call the, you know, the city, um, I don't know, just to look up what your city rules are. But it's not usually legal to forage in public parks, state lands, natural forests, although I've learned that some natural forests actually have started issuing foraging permits. And when you're out and about, Stephanie, I think you and your listeners can really appreciate this. Let's say that you come across something amazing, like a, uh, an area of elderberry bushes. Leave someone, some for other people, and then just leave plenty for the whole ongoing process of, you know, the, the life cycle of these plants and the life cycle of the berries, just so nature can continue to offer this, you know, to animals as well as to humans that happen by. That's uh, something else. Do a search, if you're interested in foraging, do a search for the name of your town or county or state, and then the word foraging. And you may be surprised that there are meetup groups that get together and learn about foraging and maybe even go out in areas together. Or there are local guidelines for foraging or foraging experts. Where I live, there is a handful of foraging experts that regularly have classes in some of the state parks around here. 
So I think that you might actually be pleasantly surprised when you go and look at this for yourself. Something else to keep in mind is possible contamination. Because wherever these things are growing, uh, dandelions or different kinds of berries and plants, I wanted to forage a big amount of dandelions one year. And I started to look at where they were growing, and I was not at all confident that the soil they were growing in wasn't tainted with one thing or another, whether it's vehicle fumes or the mosquito spraying that uh, my community does every once in a while. So you want to make sure that, just be aware of that. Just think to yourself, well, is there anything that could possibly be contaminating the plants themselves or the soil? Now, you mentioned you're in the Northeast, and so pretty soon your foraging opportunities are going to dry up. So something else to keep in mind is, you know, you want to hit that season when, uh, you know, when it's really prime time. And so I, where I live, I can forage probably most of the year, actually. But that's not true where when a heavy winter season comes in, a lot of these opportunities are just going to go by the wayside. But it's prime time for you if you have to stay indoors for the winter to uh, pull out your foraging books and foraging websites. I'll give you a couple good websites in a moment and uh, start studying up. So many amazing tips there. I'm just wondering also, do you have any books you might recommend? Well, and here is something fun, Stephanie. Think about putting together your own, uh, I'll call it a scrapbook, your own foraging scrapbook. And it could be just something as easy as a Google Doc. So as you find things, take photos with your phone and maybe make a note of, you know, specifically where you found it. So season after season, or, you know, outing after outing, you know exactly where to go. I have a good friend here in my town, and she has her own secret elderberry bush uh, locations. <laughs> and she doesn't tell many people about them. She told me at the beginning of this year, she said, I'm going to take you out and show you where my secret spots are. So just it would be a really good idea just to start making your own scrapbook. I'll call it a scrapbook. So you then begin to develop your own resource of where you can find, you know, a particularly uh, good type of plant or weed or bush or tree. Uh, as far as books go, there's an easy one written by one of my favorite foraging experts, and he goes by the name Merriweather. He actually is uh, has a PhD like in chemistry, and he worked in the oil and gas industry and helping companies develop uh, plant-based products and he really is brilliant. He is on Facebook. His Facebook uh, page or group is called Foraging Texas, all one word. And his book is called The Idiot's Guide to Foraging. It's a good basic book. Um, after you go through it and you kind of learn what there is, you may want to move on to other books and other experts, but it's a good place to start. His website, foragingtexas.com, is just excellent. And you do not have to live in Texas or the Southeast to benefit from all this knowledge. Um, and believe it or not, there is an, an app by Monsanto of all play of all companies called Monsanto Weed ID. Two letters ID, Monsanto Weed ID. And it is a very good app for identifying weeds that you see out there and letting you know how they can or cannot be used and what might be poisonous. So that is uh, another good resource. And I had another website for you. Oh, this one is called eat. It's all one word. Eat the weeds.com. Excellent. 
And then my blog, the survivalmom.com, I have numerous articles there about foraging, the safest way to do it, what to look for, and so on. Thank you so much for all of those. I will link to all of them in this week's show notes. I might just, full disclosure, I might replace the Monsanto one with (laughs) some other apps (laughs) where you can take a picture and get an instant uh, definition or um, identification is a better word of the plant that you are looking at. Before we go, though, I have to talk to you about mushrooms. Mushrooms to me, are the epitome of either amazing or poisonous. So do you think beginners should just stay away from mushrooms altogether? Or are there any health and safety tips that you have for maybe beginners and intermediates who want to deal with mushrooms? Yeah, I would suggest starting with just some uh just very simple, very common, and very easy to access plants first, just so you kind of get in the habit of looking at a photo or looking at an illustration, a drawing, for example, and correctly identifying what you see in front of you. And in the past, when I've talked to Meriwether, he says that when it comes to mushrooms, there are, and this applies to all plants, there are lookalikes. So you may find uh, a mushroom that may be a safe mushroom, but there may also be a version of that or a variety of that mushroom that's toxic, but it's hard to tell them apart. That probably is uh, the, the biggest reason to just be extra safe when it comes to mushroom foraging. Now, there is, I can, I can share with you some really good websites for this. One is called Mushroom Expert, a really, really good website. Another one is mushroom collecting dot com. And then Foraging Texas. If you go to Meriwether's Facebook page or his website uh, and just do a search for mushrooms, he'll have photos there. He loves mushrooms. I mean, he, he finds them, you know, on you're growing on trees or out of nature. He fries them up, you know, like it's just your regular vegetable. But um, you do want to just be very aware that in some of the cases in elderberries, by the way, is another example that has a toxic lookalike. So when you go out, whether it's for mushrooms or anything else, just pay very careful attention to the illustrations and the photos, just to make sure that you are uh, going to be utilizing something that's not toxic, as in a toxic lookalike. What I love about this conversation is that for so many of us in 2020, we just, you know, head to the supermarket, we buy what's on the shelf, we with 95% certainty know that it's going to be safe, we take it home and we consume it. But with foraging, the onus of responsibility and more importantly, the onus of knowledge really falls on us instead of us putting it on the supermarket and the corporations that are making and processing our food. And so it really seems to me as though not only learning how to forage, but learning how to forage well and responsibly that is just the epitome of self-sufficiency. Would you agree with that? I would. I really like that. Uh, I really like the way that you phrased and framed that. It wasn't long ago that our grandparents and great-grandparents just knew this stuff. You know, they couldn't rely on a crop. They couldn't rely on a store having what they needed. And we discovered uh, in 2020 that we couldn't even rely on toilet paper being in stock. 
Well, imagine a shortage, toilet paper or some kind of important food, uh, there being a shortage that maybe go on for weeks or months. And this is just one more way that you can take care of your family and you can provide something really important uh, that they need. And kind of winding this down, I'd like to also just add in that a lot of these plants, Stephanie, they can be preserved for future use. So as you start learning about them, find out what can I dehydrate or what can I turn into a powder that I can use in the winter, for example, when, you know, so much of this stuff has died off because of cold weather. So uh, identify, you know, identify, do your foraging, and by all means, use the plant. But if you gather more than you can use right away, look to see if there aren't ways of preserving it in one way or another. Hmm. Lisa, this was such a enlightening conversation for me personally, and I'm sure it will be for my listeners as well. As I mentioned earlier, your website is so comprehensive. I can't even <laughs> I can't even boast about it enough. Where can listeners find you online? Well, the survivalmom.com is kind of the hub of everything I do. So when you first go there, I actually have a section to help you get started. You can download a, a quiz. I have uh, just a, uh, a big a course for beginner called Prepping 101. You can learn more about it there. And I also have a five-day challenge where I send you emails five days in a row with little tasks to help you just, you know, get ready for emergencies, starting with some of the basics. And honestly, with uh, concerns about the second wave of the virus and winter coming and wildfires, those are going nuts, you know, as you and I are talking and civil unrest. Uh, it really is. I don't think there's a better time than right now to take it seriously and say, hey, you know, we want to be self-reliant. We want to be self-sufficient. What if, what would I have to do? What would I have to have in place for 30 days where our family was just very self-contained and very self-reliant? And I hope my website helps as long, along with my book, which you can read uh, and learn more about on my website as well. This is normally the time where I say goodbye, but I just have to ask you one more question that you just kind of triggered my mind is how how long do you think we should all have food and water in reserves for for an emergency? Um, Stephanie, I would say start with 30 days and this is going to be extra. So this is 30 days of extra toiletries, extra food that you can turn into very, very simple meals. And 30 days, if you think about the pandemic, 30 days uh, would have been a comfortable amount of time where if for whatever reason, it just wasn't safe to leave your home or you didn't feel safe, uh, authorities might say, hey, don't go out unless you need to. Uh, 30 days, I think, is a good amount of time. I would love to see more people with 60 days. Just because when there's an extreme weather event, we just visited Lake Charles this last weekend where a huge hurricane hit. And some of those people will be uh, in some really tough circumstances far, far longer than 60 days. But set 30 days as your initial goal. Thank you so much, Lisa. I wish you the best of luck in the future. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Stephanie. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Lisa Bedford. I have linked to her amazing website as well as the resources she mentioned in the episode in this week's show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 144. 
Now, on next week's episode, we are getting down and dirty, my friends, with the local movement. I will see you then. Have an amazing week. Stay home. Stay healthy. Perhaps leave this podcast a quick little review. Thank you so much and take care.